0: Unless you are blissfully ignorant or simply choose to remain detached from what's going on in our world, you may be experiencing anxiety this morning about the changes that are taking place in our society, no matter what side of the issues that you're on. Now, I realize that the decision that the Supreme Court in the United States made is not the decision, uh, there was no decision made here in Canada in the last few days. Instead, it was made here in Canada about 10 years ago that the, uh, the right to marry uh, as a gay couple was granted in uh, every state, or at least that's the intention of the U.S. government. I did read something from the Texas governor, who it was kind of like one of those over-our-dead-body kind of statements. But uh, at any rate, that's what's happening south of the 49th. They are experiencing some kind of drastically new world uh, today. And as things go, it will, in fact, impact us here, even though we made that decision a long time ago. And I think that whatever anxiety that may be present in your heart this morning, you, you can test this and see if you think this is accurate. I think that whatever anxiety might be in your heart about this this morning is probably true no matter what side of the issue you take because of those around you who you suspect might think something differently. Like, if we were all in agreement on this, there wouldn't be much anxiety. If we all thought exactly the same, and you knew that the person sitting in the pew next to you was thinking exactly like you do, there'd be less anxiety. But because we know that people don't think exactly like this as we do, that does tend to bring out anxiety. And so these, these are not easy times for holding on to an opinion, Or taking a stand, no matter which side of the issue you're on. And this is usually, I think in this case again, because reactions by people sitting around us oftentimes are not saturated in God's love. If you take a position that is supportive of the changes that are taking place in society, in other words, if you take a non-traditional position, and there's a lot of things going on that are non-traditional. It happens at many levels these days. Then the unloving statements made by people who don't support the changes likely upset you. And so if you hear hate-filled language, if you hear judgmental language coming from those who disagree with the changes that are taking place in our society, and you agree with those changes, then you're probably going to be upset by the volume or by the vociferous nature of those comments. And so somebody comes and they say something that you deem hate-filled or judgmental, that's probably going to cause you some grief. And I get that. And the fact is, they cause me grief too. They hurt me deeply. Especially when they come from judgmental, and I, when I say that, you know, I, I don't know how I can call somebody else judgmental without being judgmental myself. Have you noticed that? But if I say they're coming from a judgmental, self-righteous Christian, that hurts me. We as Christians have no right to condemn. We are called to love others even as God loves us and we love ourselves. We have no right to hate because our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love. In fact, love is to be defined by who God is. And in fact, I think that's a really important concept here. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love. And defines love. And as a Christian, I'm convinced that apart and separated from the God who created the universe, revealed to us specifically in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as authentic love. God is the definition of love, and this is the God whom we Christians must love and we must serve if we're going to continue to call ourselves Christians. So wherever God stands, whatever he calls love, that's where I want to stand, and I want to be loving in the way that God is loving. Now, of course, there are many Christians who don't support the changes that are taking place in society, but who in no way could be described as hateful and who are not at any level judgmental and condemning. They simply believe that the traditional positions of the church honor God best. They are as loving and as accepting of others as could be, even while they disagree with the changes that are taking place in our world, because they think that God also disagrees with these changes. And I pray that these loving Christians who remain grounded in what they take to be God-approved biblical positions will also remain absolutely committed to what they take to be the will of God on social issues and committed to loving everyone around them as they should. I think that that's the exact balance that we see in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you take a position that is not supportive of the changes that are taking place in society at so many levels then the unloving statements made by people who do support the changes likely upset you. The hate-filled, judgmental statements made and the attitudes held by those who support change no doubt cause you grief. They cause me grief too, especially when they come from judgmental, self-righteous Christians. We as Christians have no right to condemn. We're called to love others even as God loves us and we love ourselves. We have no right to hate because our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love and defines love. In fact, let me say it again. I think that this is the key principle that must constantly be kept in mind by us all. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ is love and defines love. As a Christian, I'm convinced that apart and separated from God who created the universe who revealed himself to us specifically in Jesus, there is no such thing as authentic love. God is the definition of love, and this is the God whom we Christians must love and serve if we are to be Christians. Now, those paragraphs were so long that you may not have gotten everything that's in there, but I can tell you that they were parallel. What I basically said to those of you who stand on one side of the issue is, you need to be loving to those who take a different stance than you. And I didn't say... Therefore, don't take the stance you do. But I did say, you need to be loving toward those who take a different stance than you. To the others on the other side, I said, you need to be loving to those who take a different stance than you. And I didn't say, you need to compromise what you believe. I said, you need to be loving toward those who take a different stance than you. And I really think that that's the perspective that we all have to take. Now, I do have an opinion about this. I'll actually share this in just a moment in so many words. But really, no matter what I think, the important thing is that we end up treating each other with love no matter what side of different perspectives we stand on or the sides that we take on a a particular view. We need to be loving one another and caring for one another and speaking well with one another. There are Christians, of course, who do support the changes that are taking place in society, but who in no way could be described as hateful and who are judgmental and condemning. They're as loving and accepting of others as could be, even while disagreeing with the traditional positions the church has taken on various social issues. I pray that these loving Christians will remain grounded in their belief in God and will remain both absolutely committed to God's will on social issues and committed to equally loving everyone around them. And... And here's the part where I share a little bit, I guess, of my own opinion. I pray for extra tolerance on their parts. Those who would like to see the the social changes take place, I would pray for extra tolerance on their part towards those of us who hold the traditional positions, even as we extend grace and tolerance to those who advocate change. The fact is, it is not easy seeing something called into question principles that you think are very near the center of your belief system when you think god's will established in the bible and the traditions of the church need to continue being our standard sometimes those of us who tend to continue to hold the traditional positions react in unloving ways as we try to protect what we think to be the truth please forgive us when we respond with anything less than the love and grace of christ but there are those of us who would say that we need to continue to hold to the traditional positions. And I don't think this is the morning to get into all of those positions and to make all the arguments about them this morning. This morning, the time is to say, okay, there are differences of opinion and where we stand, we need to be gracious and loving toward one another in the midst of holding these different positions. My actual subject For this morning is, however, not all that far removed from what we've been experiencing in our world. If your social media connections are anything like mine, you are frequently confronted with negative statements about Christians, Christianity and the church. And what I want to say this morning is that there seems to me to be a problem with speaking of Christianity as generally representing something that is unloving and bigoted and filled with hate. And so when you hear somebody say, you know, those Christians and their beliefs and their position, they're just bigoted and they're filled with hate and they're judgmental. I think that's really wrong. I think it's a mistaken perspective entirely. And what I want to say this morning is that I think there are very good reasons to view Christians exactly different than that. Exactly the opposite. I wouldn't say about you that you are unloving and hate-filled and judgmental if you continue to hold the traditional position about marriage in our world. Even if you are pointed about disagreeing with others, I don't think that you take a position that is filled with hate. I don't think that you're bigoted. I don't think that you're unloving. In fact, I would say that the track record of the church, it's my opinion anyway, tends to give enough evidence in exactly the opposite direction that blanket statements about how unloving the church is and judgmental simply don't work. And by the way, before someone starts thinking that I'm unaware of the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. I've, I've seen the Monty Python movies version as well. Or the Canadian residential schools, or American slavery, or colonization, or racial prejudice, along with countless other atrocities of which Christians are, are accused. Let me assure you, I am not unaware of those things. In fact, like you, they break my heart. And they break the heart of God. These have been horrible tragedies. They don't fit with the ethic that is set forth by Jesus Christ. There's a reason that Christ alone is judge. And it's because the rest of us share in human depravity. We have a hard time not sinning ourselves. We certainly shouldn't presume to judge others when we have been so guilty. And so we have to be careful here. But the church's failings it seems to me are so much only part of the story and what i mean is is that i just think there are so many great things about the church of jesus christ and this morning i want to focus on one it's this religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world and i just want to ask you the question do you think That in some way, the church of Jesus Christ measures up to this. Is there anything about who we are that somehow fulfills this idea of religion that God our Father accepts? And it would seem to me as though we do. I really, really think we do. Let me show you a picture. See that? Do you recognize that picture? That's a picture of John Coughlin... Shaving Larry Luck's head. Is there anything more holy than that? This happened yesterday, for those of you who weren't here. Larry and his daughter Kristen had decided that they were going to do something for the benefit of humankind. Like seriously, why did they do this? Why did Larry go around here for months with all that long hair and ultimately a ponytail? Why did Kristen do exactly the same thing? And then why did the two of them allow their heads to be shaved yesterday? There's only one reason. And it's because they, they want to serve Christ. If I ask Larry right now, what's your commitment to the children's hospital really all about? Yeah, you know, well, yeah, it's about the kids, and he's got a personal experience with all of that, and he wants to bless them. There's no doubt about that. But ultimately, it's, it's co- his commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord that is shaping his concern for others. And so when Larry makes the decision to grow his hair out and then get cut, have it all cut off, it's because he loves Jesus. And this is the same Larry Luck, whose wife Joanne wholly gives herself to our benevolence ministry, taking hours every week to buy food, to bring the food down here, to sort it out, to put it on the shelves, to make sure that the hungry people who come by here get something to eat. Why does Joanne do that? It takes her hours every week. And there's only one reason. It's because she cares about those who are hungry in our world because she loves jesus and here is so much of the point larry and joanne are just two of the countless millions of people who are devoted to jesus christ who give themselves in service on behalf of those who are less fortunate they bring in something good to our world And I think that generally, this is what Christians do. I would say that the church generally brings good into our world. Somebody could say, well, wait, what about the bad? Well, I've already talked about the bad. You know, I'm responsible for the bad. You're responsible for the bad. We all know how human we are. We know that we make mistakes. We know that we bring, even as Christians, that we bring things into our world that are not necessarily positive. We sometimes talk like we shouldn't. We sometimes do things that we shouldn't. We get the fact that we add negative things to our world at times. We are human. That's what we do. We are an unruly, sinful lot that sometimes acts despicably. But here's also my opinion. Even from a human perspective, Jesus the Messiah is the most important, most admired, most followed human being who has ever lived. The social ethic that he taught and exampled is considered the most important, most revolutionary, most widely influential, loftiest social ethic ever conceived. The social community that he founded, the church, is the most significant, most influential most powerful force for good that the world has ever known. And so if the poor and the sick and the lonely and the heartbroken and the unattractive and the outcast and the hurting and the disadvantaged and the imprisoned and the persecuted and the oppressed and the self-destructive the addictive, the demonized, the evil, etc., if they all, any of them, have ever received anything that is good in our world, any word of encouragement, any opportunity to arise out of their pit into something positive, there is a very good chance that what they have received was done to them in the name of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Christians do. And there are millions of people who've had their lives changed because the church, in honoring Jesus, served others. And because they wanted to follow him and love others like he did. And it just seems to me like about these things, there is no debate. And again, am I speaking to somebody who's just ignorant about the things that Christians have sometimes done that are negative? No. No. I get all of that. But when I look at the impact of the church in our world, and I consider it compared to the negative things in our world, the church has in general done what Christ has wanted it to do, and we have blessed others. Human beings who truly and consistently follow his teachings would not and could not perpetrate the sinfulness of the Spanish Inquisition. If you're following Jesus Christ, you don't conduct the crusades. If you're walking with Jesus, you are not racially prejudicial. You don't take people into slavery. Not if you're following Jesus. And so when the church has simply followed Jesus, then virtue and kindness and love and goodness and gentleness and humility and peacefulness and patience and meekness and non-judgmentalism have been the core of how we've lived. And I think these facts about Jesus and Christianity are so easy to verify, they're indisputable. And so attacks upon us and our apparently unloving nature, it just doesn't work to my mind. Because the evidence runs in the opposite direction. I would say that the world is better off because of the teachings and example of Jesus, even despite, despite the, the far too many things that we've done wrong, that the world needs to sit up and recognize that about the church instead of criticizing us for our apparent violence and bigotry and exploitation. It's true that we've done those things but I disagree that it's a legitimate interpretation of the teachings of the Bible that Jesus somehow teaches those things. Like, Does Jesus advocate exploitation? Does Jesus advocate bigotry? Is Jesus into us acting violently? Does he want us to oppress others? Does he want us to act in unloving ways? Of course not. He's exactly the opposite. And I think that the evidence heads in that direction and needs to be taken into account so it's not surprising to me that christians have done and continue to do so much good now i hate to say this to you lair you're not the only good one there are others as well there are thoughtful giving christian people like a larry luck out there and god keeps blessing our world What I want to do right now is I want to have three people come, and they're going to give you three different readings and examples of three people who very well served our world in positive ways.
1: childhood, at which time he confesses to being a shallow and misbehaving child. In fact, the death of his own mother fails to cause much pause in his selfish actions. He abides by his father's wishes to enter seminary because a minister's life in Germany promises relative comfort and would allow him to provide for his father's later years. His first years of education away from his father, though, find Mueller often in trouble. However, when a classmate invites him to a a neighbor's home Bible study, Mueller begins to desire a sincere Christian lifestyle. He shares his newfound faith with his former friends who laugh. This fails to deter Mueller. However, his devotion deepens. He feels led to become a foreign missionary with a life of financial uncertainty. Mueller's father threatens to disown his son if Mueller continues on this path. However, Mueller's devotion now lies with God and he pursues several possible assignments before moving to England. Once in England, Mueller, along with his new wife, soon begin to feel guilty for receiving a salary for their work for the Lord. Mueller feels that such financial accommodations fail to allow him to live by faith. Thus, he severs ties with the mission's agency and cancels his pew rental in his first church. Mueller records his journey of living by faith to strengthen the faith of weak believers and possibly bring others to faith. After several years in the ministry, Mueller meets a fellow minister named Crake, and the two men move to Bristol to begin the Scriptural Knowledge Institution. The institution serves many purposes, from religious education to literacy. They also ship Bibles and support foreign missionaries. The bulk of their ministry, however, Involves housing England's rising population of orphans. With such ministries, the orphans, without such ministries, the orphans frequently find themselves in immoral situations and overcrowded prisons. Without ever asking for money from another person or publishing the need for their ministry, only asking God, Mueller and his ministry operate the Growing orphans houses for decades in and around Bristol, England, the orphan houses begin as one rented house for several dozen children. By the end of his record, Mueller has built three houses that serve the spiritual and physical needs of more than 1,000 orphan children. He attributes his success to his willingness and countless others to following the Lord's will and grow their faith even through hard times.
2: Sundar Singh was raised a member of the Sikh religion. Prior to his conversion, Sundar attended a primary school run by the American Presbyterian Mission, where the New Testament was read daily as a textbook. Sundar refused to read the Bible at the daily lessons he was very confused in his youth. And in the midst of such confusion, and while only 14 years old, his mother died, and Sunder underwent a crisis of faith. His mother was a loving, saintly woman, and they were very close. In his anger, Sunder burned a copy of one of the Gospels in public. Within three days, Sunder Singh could bear his misery no longer. Late one night in December 1903, He rose from bed and prayed to God that he reveal himself to him if he really existed. Otherwise, he planned to throw himself in front of the train which passed by his house. For seven hours, Sundar Singh prayed, O God, if there is a God, reveal thyself to me tonight. The next train was due at five o'clock in the morning. The hours passed. Suddenly the room filled with a glow. A man appeared before him. Sundar Singh heard a voice say, How long will you defy me? I died for you. I have given my life for you. He saw the man's hands, pierced by nails. Amazed that his vision had taken the unexpected form of Jesus, Sundar was convinced in his heart that Jesus was the true Savior and that he was alive. Sundar fell on his knees before him and experienced an astonishing peacefulness, which he had never felt before. The vision disappeared, but peace and joy lingered within him. Despite his family's pleas, bribes, and threats, Sundar wanted to be baptized in the Christian faith. After his father spoke words of official rejection over him, Sundar became an outcast from his people. He cut off the hair he had worn long, like every Sikh man. Against great opposition, he was baptized on his birthday in 1905 in an English church in Simla. Conventional Indian churches were willing to grant him a pulpit, but their rules were foreign to his spirit. Indeed, he felt that a key reason the gospel was not accepted in India was because it came in a garb foreign to Indians. He decided to become a Siddhu so that he could could dedicate himself to the Lord Jesus. He was convinced that this was the best way to introduce the gospel to his people, since it was the only way which his people were accustomed to. As a Siddhu, He wore a yellow robe, lived on the charity of others, abandoned all possession, and maintained celibacy. In this lifestyle, he was free to devote himself to the Lord. Dressed in his thin yellow robe, Sundar Singh took to the road and began a life of spreading the simple message of love and peace and rebirth through Jesus. He carried no money or other possessions, only a New Testament. Sundar journeyed much. He traveled all over India and Ceylon. Between 1918 and 1919, he visited Malaysia, Japan, and China. Between 1920 and 1922, he went to Western Europe, Australia, and Israel. He preached in many cities, such as Jerusalem, Lima, Berlin, Amsterdam, among some others. Despite his growing fame, Sunder retained a modest nature, desiring only to follow Jesus' example— to repay evil with kindness, and to win over his enemies by love.
3: I would like to tell you the courageous and encouraging story of Corrie Ten Boom. Her parents ran a small jewelry store in a narrow house in the heart of the Jewish section of Amsterdam, Holland. There in the ghetto of Amsterdam, they met many wonderful Jewish people. They were allowed to participate in their Sabbaths and in their feasts, They studied the Old Testament together. Corrie was living with her older sister and her father in Harlem when Holland surrendered to the Nazis. She was 48, unmarried, and working as a watchmaker in the shop that her grandfather had started in 1837. Her family were devoted members of the Dutch Reformed Church. Her father was known as a kind person and was a friend to half the people of the city of Harlem. Corrie credits her father's example in inspiring her to help the Jews of Holland. He bravely chose to shield a mother and a newborn infant even though it endangered his family's safety. He said, knowing they could lose their lives for this innocent child would be considered the greatest honor to his family. Corrie's involvement with the Dutch underground began with her acts of kindness in giving temporary shelter to her Jewish neighbors who were being driven out of their homes. She found places for them to stay in the Dutch countryside. Soon the word spread, and more and more people came to her for shelter. As quickly as she would find places for them, more would arrive. She had a false wall constructed in her bedroom, behind which people could hide. After a year and a half, her home developed into the center of an underground ring that reached throughout Holland. She wondered how long all this activity, including hiding seven Jews in her own home, would remain a secret. On February 28, 1944, a man came to their shop and asked Corey to help him. He stated that he and his wife had been hiding Jews and his wife had been arrested. He needed 600 guilders to bribe a policeman for her freedom. Corey promised to help. Later she found out he was actually an informant who worked with the Nazis. He turned their family into the authorities who raided their home and arrested them. Their Jewish guests made it to the secret room in time and were able to escape to new quarters. Corey's father died within ten days from illness, but Cory and her older sister Betsy remained in a series of prisons and concentration camps in Holland and in Germany. Instead of giving up, they took this opportunity to continue their work. Corey struggled and overcame her hatred towards the man who betrayed her family, and Corey and Betsy gave comfort to the other inmates. Each evening they would hold worship services in barrack 28 with their secret Bible and songs from memory They would translate the life-giving scripture from Dutch to German and others would spread the word around the room in French Polish Russian Czech and back to Dutch They felt these evenings under the light bulb were a preview of heaven Her sister's health declined and she died on December 16, 1944 some of her last words were to encourage Corey to tell all that they had learned there, especially that there was no pit so deep that Jesus was not still deeper. Due to a clinical error, Corey was released from Ravensbrück one week before all the women her age were killed. She made her way back to Harlem and tried for a while to go back to her profession of watchmaking, but found she was no longer content doing that. She began traveling and telling the story of her family and what she and Betsy had learned in the concentration camp. Eventually, after the war was over, she was able to obtain a home for her former inmates, friends, and others to come and heal from their experiences. And she continued to travel the world to tell her story. On one occasion, in a church in Munich, after she spoke, a man approached her. He said he was a guard in Ravensbrück. He told her that since then he had become a Christian. He knew that God had forgiven him for the cruel things he had done there, but he would like to hear it from her. He asked, Would you forgive me? She knew she had been forgiven for her everyday sins, but her sister had died a slow, terrible death there, and he wanted to erase that by simply asking her a question. He stood there with his hand out to hers and waited for the most difficult thing she ever had to do. She prayed, Jesus, help me to forgive and she reached out her hand, took his, and cried, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She never knew God's love more intensely as she did then. Corey died on April 15, 1983, in Orange, California, on her 91st birthday. But her story is still told today.
0: You know, those three individuals... Um... Those stories are fairly well known. You can, you can look those up, find those on the internet, whatever. But there are millions like them. There are Larry Lux, Joanne Lux, all over the world, just serving Jesus, being what God wants them to be. And I think the church needs to be credited for that. The church needs to feel God's blessing in this privilege and gift of being able to serve you know, we, we won't mention this morning all of the hundreds, thousands of organizations that have been developed to bring good things into our world all because of Jesus. We have, even here in Calgary, things like the Calgary Dream Center or with our church. We, we work through Zambia Mission Fund Canada. Or the, the people we send into the mission field who just do good things in the names of Jesus. All of this tells me that God uses the church significantly in our world and that we ourselves should be pleased in one sense and I don't mean in a pound the chest kind of pride way but we should just be pleased that God uses us in the way that he does and so what does it mean for us well it means for me that I'm glad I'm a Christian I am glad I'm a Christian I'm glad that I'm a member of the church And again, not in some arrogant, self-promoting kind of way, but simply because I want to be associated with something good. I'd rather be associated with something that blesses humankind than not. And I am. And you are too. We're part of something that blesses our world. And so I'm glad to be a Christian. It also gives me incredible hope. You know, there are people all over the world right now who are kind of despairing. Where is all this going? I'll tell you where it's going. It's going ultimately toward the triumph of Jesus Christ in our world. That's where it's headed. We may go through some difficult times. There are no promises in Scripture that it's always going to be free and easy for us and that we can just live here in North America being Christians and no problem. It's just easy. There are lots of brothers and sisters who are all over the world right now experience something completely different than that as Christians. And so there's no guarantee that we're always just going to have it great. But there is a guarantee that God is going to somehow, some way, bring about his end to this. And we can trust in him no matter what our circumstances. A third thing is it really does secure my faith. If Jesus has this kind of positive impact on our world through people, That builds my trust in who he is and what he's done. Our world badly needs genuine Christian commitment. And I need to be committed to the faith of Christ knowing that this positive impact is going to take place. And then lastly, it simply creates more love in my heart. Clearly, God loves our world. He loves us. And from what I can tell, the only legitimate choice that I have as a Christian is to continue to love as Christ loved with his love. And so our world is in many ways in a mess. It's a strange world in which we live. But God wants us in the midst of it to be just as loving and gracious as we can be to everybody around us because God's love is just like that. And we need to follow his love. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many people who have given themselves completely to you, to your word, to following it. They've sacrificed their lives. And so often, God, they have done it on behalf of others. And I've seen the church so many times be amazingly loving and gracious caring for others in every facet of life. And I thank you, God, that there are so many good people here who do just exactly that. And I pray that you just bless us that we would continue to be a light to our world. Father, help us to be salt. Help us to infiltrate and impact through the kingdom those around us and to minister in your name, loving as we go. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.